Welcome to Disjointed. Our podcast's mission is to bring a voice to the problems facing decision-making in the built environment. Today, communication and processes are disjointed in the world of design and construction. Work happens across tools, teams, and timelines, making it hard to keep everyone connected. It's a constant challenge to reduce friction and meet project expectations. We believe there's a better way. Well, thank you for joining us today. We have a full episode on the designer's perspective today, and I am joined by Dan Gallivan. Dan, introduce yourself and say hello. Thank you, Jeff. I'm Dan Gallivan. I am IT director at Payette in Boston. I've been in the technology um, arena for 25 plus years of my career. I've been at Payette now for 18 of those um, my background in education is in architecture, and I've been working on the technology side of architecture for pretty much my whole career. Uh, very happy to join you today. So as an as a IT director there at, Gal- at uh, Payet, you actually are an architect or were an architect, so you take a different role there. It's not your classic, you didn't come out of the IT geek side of things and just had to learn design. Nope. In fact, I find that gives a little bit of an edge or an extra value to really having an understanding and supporting our staff well is really having an understanding of the business and what we're trying to do as architects and what the ultimate design goal is and what our deliverables are for the projects. Well, that's awesome because that's why I wanted to bring you on here. So because you do understand what the business needs, you do understand the problems that are facing designers and architects right now, and and you're just taking an active role in trying to solve it. Yep. And, and it's funny, too, because I feel like with architecture in general, it's a learning profession. You never stop. From the moment you first stepped into school, you know, in a studio experience, you are learning from your peers and you sort of develop and grow your career. You know, you become an intern, intern architect, you then work towards your um, you know, licensure. And there's these natural steps in growth. And I always see is you end up too as eventually the teacher. So you end up in sort of this always continuously learning environment, whether you start off as that, you know, student, and then that student then becomes that instructor over time. So I really truly do find it's a learning profession. I think you're right. I, I mean, and it's it's important that they keep to learn and keep to evolve. I mean, that's that's part of how business continues to succeed is is learning and evolving and and supporting. And that's why we're here at Disjointed. Um, I really wanted to pose the question to you. It's it you know here at Disjointed, we're about getting these ideas out on the table, especially in these early episodes that we're doing. Um, we're not really digesting the information yet because we need to get it out there. So that's why I'm sitting down one-on-one with you in an open opportunity to share the the pains that are being experienced by architects, you know? Um, so how does design stay involved in the project to maintain visibility and then, you know, keep that intent throughout the project? Things are changing. Yes, uh, things are certainly changing. Um, one of the things we've seen is really has been a change in the career. And, you know, sometimes the technology aids in that change, but sometimes it also can become a little bit of a, you know, are we adapting to the technology versus, you know, letting the technology adapt to us? And what I mean by that is the career and profession over the past, you know, five or 10 years has really been changing in its relationship. We don't see the traditional, you know, owner hires the architect, you know, architect, you know, works or studies for, you know, that user input meetings and develops a design and then puts it out to bid. 
that whole process has really changed. And it's not necessarily just the design build environment or the integrated approach that we're seeing, but it's really like through construction management uh, as that sort of grown as a profession. There's now changing in the relationships of who hires who. Maybe the construction manager or general contractor have won over a particular client and now they're hiring the architect. So it's really been a change in you know, that relationship status of who's hiring who and who's actually ultimately holding the contracts and agreements with. Um, and then we also see similar approaches, you know, whether it could be a, a state or federal contract that you're going to, to the private industry. It's really been a changing environment. And you talked about those collaborative delivery methods in the in the and the transformation that's been going through, you know, from the from the way it was done in the past into the way we're seeing it more consistently done in the future. But that has had an impact on designers and, and architects as a, as a business. Yeah, ultimately, and it's and it's funny whether it's uh, you know us going to the grocery store or us trying to build something today. Um, everything's being commoditized, and it's one of those everyone wants more for less. Um, you know, we have to lower our fees. You know, whether it's the pressure coming from a contractor or from a client, they want more in terms of design or quality or content but they want to pay less for it. And it's just the same as us being a consumer. Like you want to go and buy a vehicle. You don't want to pay that much, but you want all the features that you're going to hear or get, you know, in it in the latest, you know, Bluetooth or everything else. Or the same when you go to the grocery store, you want your money to go a lot further. And now you realize it doesn't, you know, go as far as you were hoping it would have, you know, so it's, it's definitely becoming a very competitive market. Um, and it also, the competition that you're going up with, they're also going to say, oh, I'm going to slash my fees but maybe they're then going to try to make the additional money at the end for additional services or, oh, that wasn't included if you want, you know, something else on that particular design or on that building. So we're definitely seeing a very competitive marketplace out there. And the number one component that I think everybody is, is sort of faced or facing right now as we go into 2022 is the great uh, resignation and trying to really maintain your staff, you know. We truly do recognize that our staff is our number one asset. It's the knowledge and experience that they have from how they practice and the projects that they've worked on. So we really need to have that investment in the people, develop their learning, and really continue to uh, to you know develop and grow our own staff, but retain those people to continue working on our projects. It's interesting you go down the route of the the great resignation and and the power of the people of an organization. How does pay it and how do you approach, you know, bringing in new folks and keeping them and keeping them engaged in what you're doing? Well, actually, that's an excellent point. And you're also in a situation, too, that your marketplace has definitely changed where, yeah, we're a Boston based firm. You know, it's one of those you'd often look at the Northeast or New England area to be, okay, this is where we're drawing upon maintain relationships with uh, universities in, in other areas and parts of the country or maybe where we have alumni. Now that's sort of changing. This the remote work and hybrid world area has now suddenly become, hey, you've got employees working from all over North America that are suddenly connecting into our projects or maybe even other time zones away that they're suddenly being able to offer and continue working with us. And it might be a life decision that moved that person on or we found the right person that fits fits the bill that we need or has the skills and assets that we want, you know, we're willing to take them on wherever they might be. Uh, but it also, it still does become a challenge because for us, we've taken a lot of pride that we, we're a single off, uh, office and 
with that, we have single authorship of our design. It's truly a collaborative event that is shared within the office that there's many different people that are reviewing it uh, and also, you know, providing input on particular projects. So we really, that is done best in person, in, you know, natural conversations, you know, not in scheduled, you know, Zoom events at certain times, but we really take pride on the studio experience of trying to, you know, cultivate our architects. And, and in doing so, you've obviously had to, had to make some changes there. Um, what, what kind of problems has that produced when you start talking about, you know, project delivery, when you're working in that in method, what kind of problems are you facing now? Yeah, some of the some of the biggest problems is the asynchronous work. You know, it used to be different if you and I were working on a project together and I was like, hey, Jeff, you know, I need to I need some help detailing something or what do you think about this? And sort of just trying to work out and hatch ideas, you know, now to sit there and be at a point that people need to suddenly schedule that time together, then, you know, be able to review those either using different maybe tools or methods that they would have done when they were sitting side by side or groups of teams of people. Now it's suddenly, or if we're trying to work maybe different shifts of the day or different time zones, you're working in the morning, I'm working the evening or vice versa. It now suddenly starts to become this asynchronous work and how do you communicate what each other of us have done and where the design might be at. So it suddenly definitely has changed how we communicate. And that also then lays over to the deliverables. Are we meeting the deadlines? Are we on target? Um, and it's also funny, too. We've had a number of staff that have joined us during this time. And you sit there and say, like, oh, wait a second. They don't know this person in the office who's that expert in detailing. That person has 30 plus years of you know construction administration experience. They really need to know this person. So now you have to consciously think, you know, that would have happened organically in the office. Now, I need to orchestrate these people getting together and developing a relationship and then knowing who to talk to at moments like that when they do need help. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting problem because you don't only have that internally, right? Now you actually have that same problem when you're talking about a project team. So there's got to be impacts that that the current times, the current changes are having on the overall um, participation in a project. And how's that? How's that happening? Yeah, everything gets magnified. So not only is it happening, you know, within our own firm in our own space, when you start to amplify that out across the extended design team, whether it's with your engineers, your consultants, your, you know, maybe you're working with an associate firm who is already in another, you know, geographic location, another city. Now you're trying to work with them and then you're trying to deal with all of their individual schedules. It, it just really, everything starts to get amplified that it, it really becomes more difficult to make sure that all of your humans are on the same page at the same time uh, and then advancing the design in the same way that needs to go. Well, and I mean, you talked about it and it's a kind of a taboo subject in our world, but I'm going to go there because you're talking about collaborative delivery methods and you're talking about, you know, slashing fees, but that's time. Time is burden on, you know, that's, that's how we work. So how are you guys addressing that or, or, or what are the problems you're experiencing with it? Yeah, actually, that's an excellent point. You know, one of the things that I always sort of say is, you know, time is money. And that's one of the areas where I think the contractor often benefits greatly from the sort of the change in building information modeling, but virtual design and construction. 
you know, for them to start to virtually build things and then not only do that sequencing and coordination of materials and supplies, there's a lot to be gained and they can save a lot of time and then therefore a lot of money. Architecture and design is different. Uh, one of the things I often say is like for us, design's never been about efficiency. And when we're working on uh, a design of a particular project, we're going to have multiple models running simultaneously. We might have that, you know, classic building information model that is going to be used in a production sense. But then we might have different design models that we're using. You know, there could be like, you know, that, that standard Revit model. There could be the SketchUp model that's running. There's going to be a Rhino design model. There's going to be maybe a 3D Max model that's going to be used. And each one's going to be used for a different purpose. It might be you know, studying the facade, maybe it's using for energy performance in certain areas, or maybe it's, you know, that particular designer's preferred method for, you know, designing an auditorium, a particular space within a building. And for us, you know, it's incredibly inefficient because there, we ultimately have to then feed everything back into that one production model that's going to be used, for, you know, for ultimately putting out that construction set of documents that we're uh, quite familiar with. That 3D studio model could be using like some high-end renderings that may be feeding back to the client or for donors. And now one of the big, the big ones for us over the past like you know, four or five years has been the virtual reality side. And just as a quick tangent, you know, for me, we thought it was going to be really like a tool that we were going to, you know, help impress or prove upon the clients and sort of like, hey, here, you can look at your design. But what I think it was a big sort of surprise for us is it became a design tool for the architects that the architects were getting into their models and suddenly being like, wait a second, I need to raise the ceiling. I need to move this. That railing needs to change because they started to see everything in real time. And as the technology improved and allowed us to sort of start to design in real time or make those modifications, we've really seen that been a, a quick development in the design world. So that's been an impressive feat. So then again, it becomes even another model that we're trying to maintain at the same time. And again, all of these models that we're working in have to feed back in. Uh, but there's always one thing that come out of it is going, again, it's inefficient, but great design. You never know what's the path that's going to get you. Know, you could be sketching on you know, a thousand rolls of trace and finally you get to that thousand and one and you hit the hammer on the head and say, this is what I was looking for. And that's still a big part of, you know, naturally what we're doing, that some of the designers might be working things out and, you know, sketching it and sketching over some of the other computer generated models. And then that's where they finally say, OK, this is what we need to do. You need to feed this back or document it in that production model. So. Yeah, I think there's this misconception and, uh, you know, that that's where we hit this disjointed piece that we talk about is that there's this misconception. It's like, well, just do it in the model. And it's, you've really hit on it that it's a creative process. It's also a very specific process depending on what you're trying to do. So if I'm hearing it correctly, you know, we're looking at you going, Hey, give me one thing. And it's going, well, wait, there's five things that are really the intent and are encapsulating the design that we want to communicate and so you've got a lot of that going on, if I'm hearing that right. And I love to hear the tangent on, you know, how is VR impacted? Because now our our architects are flying their models more and starting to realize the feel. Because, you know, that's important to the deliverable. That's important to the satisfaction of the client. So, you know, I think you broke it down well that when someone says, hey, we just need this, there's a lot more behind just that. 
than maybe meets the eye. And those those cost money and also it's probably pretty hard to put, you know, if if it was 1000, 1001 or 1500, you don't know when that strikes. Yeah, you don't know when you get to that point that says, "Hey, wait, this is the one that really wins or resonates or answers all of the design challenges that we had." And and that's oftentimes why we use all these different models or exploration. And even at this point of doing a lot of physical fabrication, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, traditional model building that we might be doing, whether it might be like full scale mockups that we could be working on. You know, we have a fabrication team that will be using like CNC routers, you know, maybe generating full scale so we can actually do the sun studies and say, does this cast the shadows and things that you want to see? So this is where I often say, like for the... um, you know, for the client when they're hiring the architect, really, what does this architect have to offer? You know, does it offer all of these additional services, all of these additional design explorations? Um, and it's funny too, we'll do everything from, you know, the, the large 250,000, you know, square foot science centers, 4 million square foot hospitals. And we've also even gone down to design the benches that will be used in the gardens because we care about how those benches are going to use or fit into the rest of the design of the building. So it really, uh, it's interesting to see, though, it takes a real personal effect for a lot of the architects to really be intimately involved with the design. And and with the modern delivery methods, it's it's changed, right? It used to be that you you went back and you you had that intent, you designed it and you put it out there for bid. And now you know, you're doing a lot of that iteratively. Is there new challenges that that's provided to uh, the organization and to architects? Yeah, I think some of the biggest uh, challenges, is I think the word you used was referring to it as just disjointed. So not only do you have disjointed maybe in the vision of the goal and trying to make sure that is the, is the architect's vision meeting that of the client, is the client as a team is do they have a disjointed vision or are they all on the same page? But getting each one of these and then the extended design team and all the individual players that are involved all into the same page, that can be a monumental task. Um, and I think we see that in a lot of places in society. If we might have the right intent, but are we actually all getting in agreement on the execution and path to get there? Um, so it's really trying to make sure that we're you know, keeping everybody together as best as possible to get them there. Uh, and then some of the other points you've seen with the the deliverable world, I remember going back probably about 15 or 20 years, there used to be the the a lot of talk that we're going to fast track projects. You know, client really needs to get this manufacturing center set up uh, online within like two or three years. You know, they've got a new product that's coming out and this facility is going to make that new product. So very clear goal. So we'd start doing all the site work, you'd issue a, you know site packages and sort of the foundation plans. And over time, in the past five to 10 years, every project is like that now. Every project is, you know, that enabling package that's going to be like, hey, you know, this is what you've committed to for the shell and core. You know, this is what they're going there, you know, dropping all the stairwells in place, all the elevator cores. And, you know, we're still working out the design in the meantime to say, hey, what is this building even going to look like? But we're, we know we're now committed to these particular foundation uh, restraints. And we're seeing that just time and time again. And again, it's, it's pressure maybe from the client side going, hey, you know, I need to get this facility up and running. I need to get my people in there. Or there's also the combination of the contractor. The contractor wants to get things done now. Hey, we know there's going to be escalating costs. We know I'm not going to be able to get staffed later on to build these. Let's get things done. Let's get this enclosed now. Yeah, we, we 
we kind of created some of our own problems with that. Just because we can doesn't mean we should necessarily. And we, we set a precedent we might not necessarily understand, um, especially given that, you know, early in design, when you're talking about shell and core, and then you're talking about, you know, what's the intent going to really look like? That doesn't always jive with what you're going to do in the end. No, in fact, it can change. And we've seen that a number of times, you know, we'll set out for a particular university and say, okay, this is going to be, you know, particular uh, either laboratory science or something that they're going to put in there, a very known program. But there might be a component of it that's completely unknown. Or one of the things we've found is like a developing science area. Uh, one of the big ones we've seen in some recent ones is now drone laboratories. So now there's all the space that's being designed into these spaces for drones, which are all the clearances, nettings, everything to sort of do. And we're like, you know, we wouldn't have per- you know, previously thought about these high base spaces that would have been used for this or trying to have that forethought in some of these science spaces to say, hey, what might they be doing there in the future that we need to accommodate? And so what's good methodology? What's a good way that, you know, you guys can, if you had to go back and say, all right, we're not going to do this fast track thing anymore, but we're still going to deliver. Because I think, you know, we have proven that we can deliver projects more efficiently, more effectively, um, and quicker in some respects. Um, I, I, I'm reticent to use that term because it, it, it really depends on the, on the type of building that you're building, but you know, what are good ways, what are, what are steps to take forward so that we get to a better place, but we're also continuing that forward momentum. It's, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to answer or a hard thing to really think about. Um, and I think some of the things that's come out or jumped out at me over time as we've done it is adaptability. So you need to be able to adapt your design to what are the changes that are happening, either while you're in the middle of design and or construction, or thinking about what might be changing in the particular areas that this client, if it's manufacturing or science, might be dealing with. What are the things that are going to change for them? Is there going to be something then, you know, a manufacturing component that we need to accommodate different size vehicles or different size engines or something that could be used in that area? Or we often really try to look at the performance and life cycle of that building. How is this going to perform for the client? We don't want to build something that's only going to last them, you know, that 15 or 20 years. We want to last them that 30 years that they're thinking about and, you know, going to be operating this building over that time. And that we see with a lot of our institutional uh, clients. I was going to say that's where a lot of the wisdom comes from architecture and from anyone is, is looking at a life cycle. Right. And understanding that they're currently looking at a product that's coming out or a facility that they need for a particular uh, academic study or whatnot. But you ultimately realize that you're not going to tear that building down in 15 years. You're going to you're going to do an improvement or a renovation of some sort, a change of some sort. So you're trying to impart a lot of that wisdom because eventually when that comes down to being redone, it's going to come back to you and it might, it might judge the success might be judged 15 years down the road. Yep. No, no, actually that that's an excellent point. And we often, we use that as a bit of a measure of success. You know, did the client, was the client happy with us when we did the original? Are they asking us back to continue? Um, and that is really important to us. And we've seen that with a lot of our institutional clients, some that we've been very fortunate to work with for many years. We've even seen those buildings that, you know, our firm, you know, Tom Payette did 
40 or 50 years ago, and they're still a client of our building, you know, of ours, and we're able to go back in and modify those spaces to actually continue. And it might be an enhancement of mechanical systems. It might be the sciences that have changed, you know, laboratory upgrades, uh, you know, a whole gamut of different things that can be done to those space. But to see that type of, you know, building be able to be maintained and used over the future, it actually does put a lot of pride in the firm to see that. A lot of pride in too, when you're talking about a project team, um, I'm going to challenge that a lot of the other participants might not have that purview that you have. And how do you get that purview across, you know, during the process that like, listen, I know that you're thinking about the now, whether you're a general contractor and you're thinking about the current cost, whether you're a trade contractor and you're, you know, currently focused on your scope with your wider purview, how do you get that across to the rest of that team? Yeah, and, and actually, I think that goes back to the sort of the comment we're making in the beginning about the continuous learning. Um, you really need to have those conversations, you know, as a, as learning events within the firm. And it, it's not just you know people working in a studio; it's people working out loud and sharing what they're doing. Um, you know, for instance, today in my office, there's what we call an alcove where they'll review a project, and it's open to everybody in the firm to participate. And it's going to be uh, somewhat hybrid. But it's going to be an, an, an office component, and there's going to be also people joining, you know, through remote technology to participate as well. But people really need to be an active participant, asking t- questions, asking questions for their own benefit to learn, but also challenging the team that's presenting the design. Have you thought of this? Have you thought? And it's completely not in a in a method of you know competition, but it's to help develop the individual and help develop the team and help develop the design. Um, and we see that we we need to hold those types of events um, almost on a daily basis, whether it's a, a formal training class, whether it's a lunch and learn where maybe a product is coming in and viewing, whether it's our own building science group saying, hey, these are the patterns that we're seeing, or maybe these are post-occupancy evaluations they've completed of building that we did maybe 10 years ago. Is it living up to what we originally designed it to? Or is it doing better or how has it changed or how can we change it to maybe even make sure it's you know meeting the future needs of the client? Okay. And given the experiences that you guys have had that internally, is there opportunities or have you seen opportunities where you're starting to go out and get those other groups involved, whether you're talking about engineers, where you're talking about major trade contractors, um, even the GCs who have an experience in the sequencing of the way things go in? Yeah. One thing I would say is we're very lucky to have some great partner firms and particularly on the engineering side. So there's a few engineering groups that we really share similar vision and ethos, uh, whether it's in the building performance, the maintenance, uh, maintenance of the client relationships. And there's a lot that we work closely with and will their own engineers or our architects will share and help develop that knowledge within their own staff. So, you know, we might have guest speakers that are coming in and then our staff are going out to speak to theirs as well. So there's a lot of joint uh, relationships that we'll fall into in that particular area. What we'd really like to see, and and then this would be the real challenge, is really working closely with the contractors in those situations. There are a few that we really work well with, and we're able to share those, um, those particular clients or either building topologies that we run into oftentimes. And that's really the strength in those relationships, especially knowing that if there's being a change in who's winning over the client, we can really be used as an asset to each other to say, hey, not only is this the firm that you know helps share that vision, can help get the construction done that you need it to, and then vice versa. Maybe they're the ones that introduce us to be like, we know that this firm, you know, it's one of those things. And I don't know if I said in the beginning, you know, we were the 2019 uh, AIA 
uh, firm award recipient. And with that, you know, there's an award that really focused on doing great design. It's a measure of your firm has really succeeded in its contribution in the design world. For us to win it for doing, you know, laboratory science and healthcare and, you know, few other projects that are sort of outside of that space was really a highly, we regard it as a really highly uh, recognizable award, but a high achievement. And knowing that, you know, we're creating a space that makes a difference in the life of the occupants, whether it's in the healthcare world, you know, introducing hailing gardens, or whether it's a laboratory science world and making, you know, introducing natural light into spaces that the scientists can accommodate, or maybe uses their personal offices when they're not conducting, you know, uh, science uh, experiments. You know, those were one of those things that we really viewed it as if we can do great design with what people find is not an exciting building topology oftentimes, you know, we really found that as a high achievement. So that's something we've taken a lot of pride in. It's a lot of pride because you're taking a look at, you know, say 15 laboratory stations in a row and, you know, that that there's not a lot of glitz and glamour to that. However, you, you know, as a firm, it seems you've taken the approach that, well, we can make it enjoyable and we can do the best with it. And that, and that delivers a different experience. And that takes me to, you know, when Payette is, you know, looking at defining success for them, wh- what does success mean and what does it look like now and in the future? It, it's funny you ask that. Um, Architects are notorious for really liking awards and giving them each other awards. So we often use that, obviously, as a benchmark of success. Was it an award-winning design? But when it was award-winning design because it made an impact in the community, we take a lot of pride in that. Um, we've had a few, you know, we do like either pro bono work or work in our community knowing that we can have an opportunity to give back. When we win those types of awards, that actually means a lot to us. Um, just as it would, you know, as I mentioned, we're winning like the firm award or other honor awards for projects. Uh, it's funny, too. There's one that I see oftentimes myself is we do a lot of educational work. And when you see students using the laboratory science building or mathematics center, but they're using the common spaces in there because those are the, built, the spaces that they really prefer on their campus to go and sit and read or study or gather with their friends. We actually kind of look at that and we say, actually, we take a lot of pride in that, that they really you know, appreciate the interior space. They appreciate the natural light, the ventilation um, and the sense of gathering. And that often jumps out to us, too, is, you know, if you created a space that people do want to gather in, uh, whether it's a, a garden or a built space, you know, you really do take a lot of pride in that. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's really important that the building is seen beyond that. And I mean, that's a great measure of success because you've gone beyond, um, you know, we a lot of people talk about the owner being, you know, the, the ultimate uh, winner in it. But really, it's it's the people that inhabit because that owner built that environment, because they wanted that. Um, and it's hugely impactful and a, and a, and a great metric. Um, one of the, uh, as we start to wind this thing down, one of the things I wanted to do in this show is really get out ahead of some of the problems that might you think might be facing us or particularly are facing architects as we change. It's funny that you say that. Uh, I, I think the number one thing, it, and it still probably remains, and it may have been the same thing, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago, it's communication. It's communication among the clients. It's communication among the design team. It's communication among the staff, the owners, everyone involved. It really comes down to people need to have clear communication of what their expectations are 
and clear understanding with that communication of what that final deliverable is going to be. Uh, and maybe even what mar marks that level of success. As you mentioned, you know, if we're designing a particular space and the owner is, say, a university, is the university ultimately happy or is the students or scientists that are working in that university, are they really ultimately the ones that really need to be happy with that space? It's going to be the space that's going to attract them to go into that place, attract them to go into work there. Maybe that's ultimately who we're designing for. Uh, I think that that lays out a lot of the problems and a lot of the challenges that are moving forward because we have a lot more to consider as we start to move forward. I mean, you're talking about the changing in those facilities and looking at laboratories, but also, you know, I think in the past we didn't look at laboratories and then trying to have nice spaces for those scientists to have time to collaborate and to work together. When you're talking about learning facilities, you know, we, we had desks and rows and blocks and how many classrooms you could build, but now it's more about the change in our world and how we adapt to that change. And then what is that value going to be for that building down the road? Um, because sometimes they don't even know 15 years down the road, all they heard was bad things, even though at the time, oh, they liked it because it came in under, under budget. Yep. And that's actually an interesting point when I, it, it sort of resonated with me when you when you were speaking there. And it made made me think of like modular design where you start to see a lot of this opportunity now and, and you see it in neighborhoods, you know, throughout you know the globe where this very modular based design. And even if you're doing something that's repetitive, modular, um, affordable, you know, it, it's a little bit of the IKEA approach too in some particular ways, you can still make it have great design, it can still work, it can still function, it can still perform well in those particular metrics, even in a modular environment. It, and it's important that it comes back to that communication you talked about earlier and everybody being on the same page. If And we need those modular designs in some areas and we need those that kind of repeatability and productability from a production perspective, but that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be an environment someone wants to be in. It's not worth building if no one really ever wants to use it in most cases. You know, there's obviously edge cases for everything, but, but ultimately if we want those homes to be enjoyable, where it allows a space that can then be customized right and and then be used and and lived in and enjoyed well then we've delivered so well i i want to take a moment to thank you for sitting down dan um you know it's 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 important right now that we have these conversations it's important we get these these this information out there um if people want to connect with you or learn more about your company where can they go uh, you can either find more about me on our Payette website, so payette.com, P-A-Y-E-T-T-E.com, uh, or also connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, and I'm also on Twitter, as uh, I think at Gallivan Dan um, is my Twitter handle. Thanks for tuning in to this season of Disjointed. Remember to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Disjointed or read the show notes, just stop by disjointed.fm. Do you have a show idea or want to lend your voice to the discussion? Then email me at jeff at disjointed.fm. This show is brought to you by Join, the decision-making platform for the built environment. Learn more at join.biz.